Mountain Southwest. Kind of the midpoint for what we're about to do. I bid you good morning from the Hawaiian and Tahitian Islands all the way across this great nation to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south well into South America, north to the poles. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Mark Bell. And I'm going to do something in a few minutes I've wanted to do now for quite some time. Number one, Richard Hoagland is back. We've got him with us this morning. Richard Hoagland, a NASA consultant, science advisor to Walter Cronkite, Houston Science Award winner in New York, is with us. He knows more now about the CSS untethered satellite project. And he thinks it's related to heart. Many, 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 many time zones away. I've also got Dr. Nick Beggett, author of Angels Don't Play This Heart. And I thought it high time that I get them together. So we're going to do that here in just a moment. It could be very interesting. All right, I want to remind him. Uh, just two more little items. One is, those, Vidian is now up, and those of you who call, I've got a little uh, photograph here of the untethered satellite glowing, as Richard would say, like a giant exclamation point in space. And those who call on Vidian this morning, I will try, I will try to hold that photograph up for you so you can see it. Um, this uh, Reuters story just cleared the wire, and it's on AP as well. Computer glitches are creating problems for the Space Shuttle Columbia. The glitch is in a computer system that relays information from the shuttle's landing systems to its onboard computers. It means the shuttle flight might have to land at its backup landing site at Edwards Air Force Base in California Friday rather than Kennedy uh, in Florida. NASA says the crew is not in danger. NASA prefers to land in Florida to save the expense of ferrying the shuttle from the West Coast back to its Florida base. So they're talking about a Friday landing now, uh, possibly at Edwards, and that is the latest news that I've got hot off the wire. Now, let's see if we can do what we want to do here. Let's go to New York. Richard Hoagland, are you there? I am here. Good. Uh, let's now see if we can go to Alaska and connect with uh, Dr. Nick Begich. Are you there, Doctor? Yes, I am. <laughs> can you hear each other? Yes, I can hear Nick fine. Okay. Uh, we're Isn't in it amazing what technology can do? <laughs> it is when you consider that not only are you two now speaking across zillions of miles in time zones, but you're also worldwide on the Internet. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, listen, gentlemen. Um, I would just like to hear, you, you two are just meeting each other for the first time, so I'd kind of like to sit back and hear an exchange between you. Uh, and Richard, I would think you might want to start. I know you've got a lot of late news and things to fill us in on since you and I have missed each other <laughs> uh, for a few days here. Yes. Well, all right. Uh, to kind of catch up on where we are, we have a shuttle about to come home, hopefully with seven astronauts in good health when they land. We don't exactly know at this hour. I've got CNN here with the sound down so I can, you know, relay any late bulletins. But we don't know whether they're going to pick the Cape or Edwards. 
interested in left very much up in the air. Um, since our last shows, our, what has happened is a lot of grassroots folks in Alaska, in particular uh, a couple uh, that I like to single out, uh, John Eller and uh, Richard Lamp, have been providing me documentation of what we suspected but uh, did not have the paperwork to prove on the last show that we did, namely a uh, traceable, you know, paper trail connection between this uh, civilian project, this pure scientific research project on the shuttle called the Tethered Satellite, and a military project that has rather interesting implications and permutations that I'm sure Nick will, will fill us in on, uh, in Alaska called HARP. Since our last conversation, Art, we now have an unequivocal connection between these two projects. And what's interesting to me is that normally when we were conducting military operations with the space shuttle, what the, uh, what the DOD would do would be to basically commandeer a flight. They would put up either a, um, you know, uh, optical observation satellite, a radar observation satellite, or some other, you know, set of experiments. They would basically put a news blackout over the mission. The, the mission was announced as a military mission. Even the launch time was kept secret, although it's kind of silly because all the reporters just hung out at the bars at, you know, Cocoa Beach and just watched out the windows to see when the thing was going to leave. It's kind of hard to launch a shuttle in, in, in secret, so that never made much sense. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of played this game that, okay, there's certain things they're doing we're not supposed to know, and there were, were speculations in the press, and the New York Times, and John Pike would come on from the American Federation of Scientists and, you know, extol and importune that, you know, this money was being wasted on things that now the Cold War was over that weren't really needed. Well, that's all fine and good, but at least we knew that there was a military project underway and that NASA was basically providing the truck. Well, this particular mission, it really is beginning to look more and more, and I know that I'm speculating here, but it's looking more and more from the paperwork, that what we had was a military mission masquerading under the guise of a civilian, purely scientific research project. And I well, got away from them. Uh, uh, well, all right. Um, Dr. Bagot, uh, isn't that kind of what you think HARP is? Uh, it's the same word, Dan. Uh, well, all right. Um, Dr. Bagot, uh, isn't that kind of what you think HARP is? Uh, it's the same word game. It's the same uh, way they've uh, characterized this program. Purely research, scientific research, uh, no military mission, and yet when we, you know, when anyone looks at the, the documents, we, we've all seen that by this stage of the game, they, they clearly see it's a, a joint project by the Navy and Air Force. And, uh, you know, and, and what has uh, come out on this tether is uh, certainly getting one more interesting as, as the days wear on. Well, I want to give proper credit to Bruce De Palma, who when I sent him some of the NASA paperwork and he started doing the calculations, he realized that, you know, if you want to generate power with a 13-mile-long piece of wire, uh, this is a very inefficient way to do it but that it would make one dang good low-frequency antenna. In fact, it would be a very low-frequency ELF, extreme low-frequency antenna, dangling, you know, 200 miles up more or less, aimed straight down as a dipole, always toward the center of the Earth. And the more I looked into the, the, the HARP literature and what 
Bruce had come up with in terms of his, his speculations, the more I realized that uh, uh, this thing really seemed to have a double duty. And in fact, the power generation aspect almost was uh, window dressing, PR. And I will give you an example of how kind of silly the, the, the so-called power generation excuse that has been presented to us seems to be. We have an 1,100-pound satellite, the satellite itself, built by, by the Italian Space Agency. It's crammed with all kinds of things which, you know, I don't know how four experiments can weigh 1,100 pounds. You know, we sent probes to Jupiter and Saturn where the instrumentation weighs 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 5 pounds. What kind of scientific gear would they have crammed into this thing to weigh 1,100 pounds, gentlemen? That's the first question. The next question is, if you're going to be using a satellite deployed from the shuttle to generate electric power, then why have we been hearing for the last week that the batteries were or dead? Wouldn't it make sense if you were going to perform an experiment to generate power that you would put a circuit on board the satellite so the power you generated could be used to recharge the batteries? Of course. To demonstrate proof of principle? I mean, nowhere in this either in the cargo bay of the shuttle or in the satellite, is there one piece of equipment designed to capture the power that's been generated? All right, can we go back to basics for a second? Here we've got this long tether out there. 13 uh, miles of it. Yeah. Do the two of you agree that the length of the tether uh, would lend itself to um, the acceptance of or the receiving of something from heart? Oh, unquestionably. It is a 13-mile-long tuned resonator. If you irradiate it, it breaks in any time you want, but if you if you irradiate this thing dangling in what's called the F layer of the ionosphere, moving around the Earth every 90 minutes at roughly 17,500 miles an hour, if you irradiate it from a transmitter anywhere on the Earth with the appropriate frequency, that matches the impedance and the size of the antenna, right. which is roughly 13 to 14 kilohertz, all right, that's the primary frequency, then this little dipole, this 13-mile-long dipole, this wire hanging straight down, will re-radiate like crazy in resonance to that incoming electromagnetic energy being beamed to it literally from any place on the Earth. Because of the low frequency, if the, if the transmitter, let's say, was the HARP transmitter located in, in Alaska at roughly 62 degrees north and 145 degrees west. Is that about right, Doctor? Yes. Um, because of the, of the um, trapping properties and ducting waveguide properties of the ionosphere, which acts basically like a radio mirror, those very, very, very low-frequency radio waves will literally bounce their way around the curvature of the Earth until they cross this antenna, which then will resonate with them wondrously and will re-radiate them in a spherical pattern straight down over whatever it happens to be passing over at that moment in its orbit around the Earth. <laughs> which is where the orbit itself becomes a very interesting thing to look at, which, of course, in the last couple, three days, we have been looking at it. And the orbit is passing over some very interesting things, and the most interesting thing for me, Nick, is it's passing directly every 90 minutes, well, 
actually only for one period of time every 90 minutes and then it would it would come back over a period of a week and it would pass over it again because the orbit is not constant it is shifting backward because of some complexities of celestial mechanics but for a time period let's say a window for a day or so this spacecraft this antenna will pass directly over the great pyramid at giza <laughs> and i think that's what they're looking for because, gentlemen, and Nick, I know you don't know this, but you're going to have one heck of an aha experience. The sighting of the HARP transmitter at 62 north and 145 west is perfect for the hyperdimensional connection to probing the Giza Plateau from Alaska. Now, I guess we need to catch Nick up a little bit. Uh, Nick, are you familiar with uh, Richard's uh, hyperdimensional physics at all? No, I'm not. Uh, it goes to... Well, it's not Richard, it's actually Maxwell. All I am is kind of... Real spokesman, I am. Maxwell's mouth? James Maxwell. James first Maxwell. Yeah, I said Maxwell's mouth. That's right. <laughs> um, in other words, you're saying that this antenna, glowing as it is, and it is incredibly glowing, is glowing because of a power source, harp or uh, power that is there? Not necessarily, all right? The reason it's glowing, and this is where I think that the guys who planned this did not understand what they were dealing with. They're looking at a combination of brilliance and dumbness. You know, arrogance and stupidity, all in one package. All right? These people think they're God because no one, there are no checks and balances. They've been getting away for the last 50 years with carrying out an increasing series of escalating experiments all over the earth with unlimited money, without accountability in the Congress, and they think they can do anything, and this finally has dipped them in a very delicate part of their anatomy. What happened on Sunday night to the astronauts was not supposed to happen. All right? Uh, what is happening now with the tether was not supposed to happen. What they have not realized is that by putting a 13-mile-long direct short between two layers of the ionosphere, and the fact that the Earth is driving a hyperdimensional generator and generating enormous currents, both in terms of voltage and amperage down that wire, they have created a visible symbol of their playing around with forces that are bigger than all of us. And that may or may not be interfering with their purpose, which was to do some clandestine experiments with nobody noticing. The scenario that I proposed that they had planned was that after the day of experiments with the shuttle, where they talk about generating power and doing all that stuff, they were supposed to reel the tethered satellite back into the cargo bay by, you know, basically reversing the fishing line, you know, model here. And I am in proposing that they would have announced that, oh, whoops, we have a problem, Houston. We can't reel it back in. And then Houston would have said, well, gentlemen, you obviously have to go to plan B, jettison the tethered satellite. Mm -hmm. And would, they would have tossed the, the antenna and the satellite and the wire and the uh, tower out of the uh, payload bay so they could close the doors and come home. And this thing would have been left there in Earth orbit with them safely on, on the way home. Mm -hmm. And nobody would ever have even noticed or questioned that, in fact, it was not dead, Jim. It was providing its own power, and it was going to perform a series of experiments without anybody noticing. But something happened. Serendipity stepped in. And on Friday night at 7.30 Central Standard Time, as it was about to cross the equator at the Terminator, precisely at sunset, 
somebody in their brilliance at the computer opened the circuit for four minutes. So that an enormous voltage, maybe 100, 200, 300,000 volts, built up in this 13-mile-long wire. And it zapped over to the ground at the shuttle, frying the tether, melting it in space, which pulled apart like taffy. You can see that on the close-up TV. Now, I don't want to stop you there, because we talked about this the other night on, on the radio without your presence, Richard. And I said, look, I've seen the tether uh, where it was separated, and I couldn't see any char marks. Then I added, well, maybe in space you don't char when you burn. And you said, but it pulled apart like taffy, which means, in essence, as plastic does, it virtually melted. It melted. It melted, and cleanly so. And, the, and when indeed, when you look at it, it looks like it melted. Now, the Kevlar did this color. There is a kind of an orangish, darkish area on one side on the, on the enhanced photos that I've been able to grab from CNN. We have some very sophisticated, you know, imaging equipment here, and we've been able to take some of these and look at them. But it looks exactly like if you were to take a piece of plastic, you know, let's say a soda straw, mm -hmm. and hold it in a candle flame and pull it apart, you yeah. get a very thin set of strands Absolutely. before it broke. The point is that when that event happened, it generated one heck of a spark with God knows how much amperage. Remember, Tesla used to play around with millions and millions of volts, mm -hmm. but the amperage was nothing. That's why he could play with it and hold light bulbs in his hands and have it play around his hair and his fingers and all that. But you put any amperage, amperage is simply electrons, numbers of electrons, together with voltage, which is pressure. You put those two together and you have potentially a deadly combination. And in essence, what I think happened is that a little bomb went off in that payload bay at the top of that tower. An electromagnetic bomb, because you basically had a direct short it leaped across from the tether to the shuttle, and in space with no air, you know, just the F layer of the atmosphere, which is very, very thin up there, it had to have been hundreds of thousands of volts to, uh, to, 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 to jump that, you know, couple, three, four, four feet. At which point, all hell literally broke loose in that shuttle. And that's why they sounded so panicked. Including the crashing of the computer, no doubt that they've just figured out has crashed. Well, I think what we can reasonably extrapolate, even from known physics, is that if you have a huge electric arc discharge, relatively close to very sensitive solid-state electronic devices, you wind up with a lot of computers going, ah! Yeah, sure, anybody who walks across the room touches their computer exactly. at the wrong time knows exactly. about that. All right, listen, Richard, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, when we come back, we'll turn to Dr. Nick Davis for a moment and get his take on HARP, what HARP is, and how HARP might be connected or could be connected or whether it is connected. And I've got a feeling they agree on that to what's going on in space right now. Columbia 
will attempt to land at 5.52 a.m. this morning, that specific time. Martin in Albuquerque reporting that, but not telling us where it's going to land. I would imagine at that hour, it would be, it would be Florida, you would think, or maybe not necessarily so at all. So we don't know yet where it's coming down. I guess we've got a time. In a moment, back to Dr. Nick Beggett and Richard Hoagland, separated by many a time zone. New York, Alaska, brought together here in the desert for you and the rest of the country. Why wait? If you suffer, all you're calling for now is a free video tape. 1-800-448-5700. All right, now, uh, back to my two guests, Richard Hoagland and Dr. Nick Beggett. And Dr. Beggett, uh, if you could give a very quick overview of what heart is, what you know about it, that would help a lot of listeners that are new to all this, I'm sure. See, HARP um, is a joint venture between the Air Force and Navy. It is a program operating in Alaska. It is a extremely large radio frequency transmitter with an effective radiated power um, at this particular phase of up to one billion watts of power. And what um, is happening at this point is it's going into a, a number of um, tests this year. Um, in fact, a, a test beginning March 16th um, will be testing um, penetrating tomography as an application which will be operating in uh, the ELF range, extremely low frequency range, by modulating the ionosphere, which is exactly what um, Richard has been, been talking about. Uh, no, um, Nick, can I interrupt you for a sec? Oh, certainly. This, this uh, spacecraft, the, the untethered satellite now, has a limited lifetime. It is going to slowly circle the Earth and, and spiral in and ultimately burn up in the atmosphere because of atmospheric drag as well as the electromagnetic drag on this huge and, and antenna is coming down magnetic drag on this huge and, and antenna is coming down you know a few feet every day so it has a limited life one of the things i was looking at is the coincidence between these new high power tests of harp in alaska and the projected half-life of the satellite up there before it re-enters and is no longer uh, of, of, of use. And this idea of a date between the 16th and the 22nd, which is a date that I've been given where um, um, apparently the FAA is warning pilots not to depend on satellite locator beacons during this period of time. Really? Yep, yep. And this um, is the test sequence. This is the test sequence. And this, of course, is when, if my information on the orbit is correct, our little friendly 13-mile-long glowing satellite up there will be passing directly over the Giza Plateau. Interesting. Okay. I trust you find it so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what we um, have gotten recently that, uh, while I was out of town this last couple of weeks, I've gotten a, um, one of our um, people that have heard us on the air before sent us a document called uh, Hub Research and Applications, and it's an executive summary from June of 95. Yeah, I've just got it myself. Yeah, very interesting in terms of laying out um, the electrical potential um, in the locations uh, affected by HARP. And there's a number yep, of... This is produced by the Technical Information Division of the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. Right. That's exactly right. And this, 
this document, you know, really starts to tie, if you look at it carefully, you can see, um, I'm, in fact, on page 11 of this document, it shows um, sort of the area that might be, um, be um, affected by the, the transmitter, which is much larger than I originally thought was possible at this power level. But it certainly crosses the path of this um, um, orbiting tether. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I don't disagree with anything that, that you said, Richard. I think it does hook it together. And looking at, you know, the scientific mix, the, the facts that um, I believe you sent to me just a little while ago. Well, I, I related. I did that. Okay. Um, the uh, T. Um, uh, Bernhardt that's underlined. The other uh -huh. name that's on the USA team on that organized committee is a man named Inan who works um, uh, in uh, Stanford, I believe. But he is also tied to the Heart Project, and in fact, he was the person that discovered that by um, uh, when DLS frequencies strike the coupling, uh, when DLS frequencies strike the coupling point between magnetosphere and ionosphere, yeah. it creates that amplification effect of up to a thousand times and uh, causes an electron-particle rain over the area. Wow. And this was done with you know standard. Um, DLF transmitters, nothing with the power and potential of a heart-type transmitter. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, that particular individual's the discovery of that, along with another scientist meant really well during Antarctic work, and his tie to this project, they, they very well know what potentials, um, you know, are, are available. And what they're looking at in this, this new heart document that we've received um, is this, this, this idea that the amount of power uh, potential are huge. I mean, just huge. The way it's described on page five of that document is uh, the auroral electrodynamic circuit carries towards the Earth 0.1 to 1 million megawatts of power, mm -hmm. equivalent to 100 to 1,000 large power plants. Yeah, of course, the question is where is that power coming from? <laughs> and in our model, that is hyperdimensionally generated power because of the Faraday homopolar generator effect. Which, of course, raises the specter of who has known what. And there's the seven guys up there who, you know, experienced this rather interesting event last Sunday night. Were they clued in or were they not clued in? Uh, you, I, I, I think it is your belief, Richard, that uh, one or two uh, or who knows how many astronauts may be well aware of what's going on in part of the experiment and the others out in the cold. That's basically... Well, see, this is, this is a pattern we're seeing in NASA as a whole. As you know, in the last 13 years, we've been looking at a series of NASA imagery starting at Mars and moving toward the moon. And we're finding that what we have is a NASA within a NASA. We have most of the system that doesn't understand what's been going on, and a tidy cadre of people inside who are manipulating data, manipulating communications, manipulating people to get them to do things that they are not even aware that they're doing for those who they're doing it for, who they have implicit trust in, but who are not leveling with them about all the implications. That's really interesting because, uh, Dr. Beggett, you believe the same thing is probably true about the heart project itself on the ground, don't you? Absolutely. And when you look at, you know, the, the thing that's come up on, on your show before is, you know, what frequency range is this operating within? Yeah, let's talk about that. And, and I've got, um, I'm going to quote from this document, so I think it's pretty interesting and revealing because it's sort of the two-sided sword of the words, you know, and what the actual frequency range of the HF transmitter is 2.8 to 10 megahertz, okay? Mm -hmm. But let me read what it says. It says, 
by exploring the properties of the Aurora ionosphere as an active, nonlinear medium. The primary energy of the HF transmitter, which is confined in the frequency range of 2.8 to 10 megahertz, can be down converted in frequency to coherent low frequency ranges, excuse me, low frequency waves spanning five decades, as well as up converted to infrared and visible photons. And it says, as a result of the heart, they could transmit and generate sources for remote sensing and communication spanning 16 decades in frequency. So although the transmitter is limited, what it's capable of affecting is, is quite large. And what they have diagrammed um, below this, it's on page 6 of that document, is goes from the visible, um, uh, which is uh, all the way at one end of the spectrum, all the way down to um, uh, ultra-low frequency uh, below 1 hertz. On the other hand, it's below one hertz. Uh, now, my understanding of the way HARP works is that there's a very, very large antenna farm. I've got photographs of it. That produces a very wide signal where it begins, but where it hits the ionosphere, or where they want it to hit the ionosphere, it's a very narrow, very powerful beam. In other words, it, it operates in the exact opposite way most antennas uh, arrays uh, would operate.
Uh, Richard Hoagland's fax number is area code 201-271-1703. 201-271-1703. Now, on unrelated subjects, the Brothers to the Rescue are on their way back to Cuba today. Today. Now, I told you what would happen, and it is happening. One week after two light planes were shot down near Cuba, the Brothers to the Rescue is about to return today, ostensibly to lay a wreath in the water uh, in honor of the, uh, the dead. A flotilla of boats, Brothers to the Rescue, and two more aircraft will participate. This will occur about 17 miles off the Cuban coast where it is still controversial, but the oil slick was present from the planes that uh, the MiG-29 shot down. Now, here's what I told you would happen, and it is happening. They will not be alone. Escorting them is going to be the Coast Guard, which will send four cutters and four patrol boats, Coast Guard aircraft as well, will be on the scene, and in the background, if needed, U.S. warplanes, F-15s, from Homestead Air Force Base will be on standby alert. And I told you the President would do this, having no choice. The U.S. government has officially warned Cuba, and the brothers as well, the President signed what's called an Executive State of Emergency, allowing enforcement of peaceful travel in international waters. Why he had to do that, I don't know. I thought international uh, waters uh, were free to travel in without the need of executive orders, but that's what NBC said. Cuba says, if provoked, it will respond. Could Castro be dumb enough? to send his MiGs back out again, and if so, what do you expect will occur? A couple of other items that I've got to get on the air. This one blew me away. Do you remember when Jerry Adams, the head of the IRA's political wing, was invited to Washington? Do you remember that? And I bitched about it at the time. And here you've got a terrorist killer of being invited into the U.S., you remember that? You know, everybody said there's going to be peace with Britain, and there was a chance for peace, and so he came over, and it was peace for a little while, and then the IRA recently began blowing things up in a very bloody fashion once again. Remember that? Last few days, you've seen the photographs, right? The bus in Israel, blown into smithereens, they were picking parts of Israeli people out of the metal. Well, guess what? This one goes down as, can you believe it? Jerry Adams has just been granted a three-month visa to come to the U.S. by President Clinton. Oh, they say, well, the president would visit but meet with him. But the political head of the IRA's uh, political wing, or the head of it, coming to this country right after these bombings? What in God's name is going on? And if that one is not enough for you, if that's not enough of a head shaker, 
try and figure this one out. The international war on drugs was high on the president's agenda today. How can this be? Colombia, a nation that we know for sure has the cartels and uh, generates most of the cocaine uh, that traverses uh, by air, sea, or land to the U.S. Colombia has been given a failing grade, and that means that they're going to have U.S. aid cut off. More than a hand slap, they're going to lose a lot of money. Colombia gets an F, and they lose U.S. aid. Okay? Until you look at Mexico. The Justice Department just said of Mexico, and I quote, no country in the world poses a more immediate narcotics threat to the U.S., the United States, than does Mexico, end quote. That is from our own State Department. Mexico, which is said to be a bigger problem drug-wise than Colombia, passed with flying colors will continue to get aid, even though, again quoting, Mexico is America's biggest cocaine supplier, they passed with flying colors, the president apparently has declined to do anything at all to Mexico because Mexico's economy is too fragile. And Mexico, being adjacent to our border, is, quote, too important to us, end quote. If this isn't the craziest, nonsensical foreign policy that I've ever seen in my whole life, I don't know what is. So we care about Colombia, which is generating drugs that are coming up here, enough to cut, up, cut them off completely. Because they're not on our border, because their economy is otherwise perhaps okay. But Mexico, which by the government's own words, is a much bigger problem, passes, and we lie to ourselves and say they're not a problem. My God! What is wrong with this country? What is wrong with the people in Washington that they could even consider doing anything like this. The hypocrisy, apparently, is, uh, <laughs> cannot be too big for them. All right, one more item, and then we'll get to the, uh, we'll get to the phones here. It is, of course, the primary. Yeah, we'll get a little politics here. The primary today in South Carolina. Nation's first southern primary. And it is interesting because it, the results of it uh, may well, in my opinion, eliminate uh, Lamar Alexander. It may be his last hurrah. I've got a late Reuters uh, poll for you in South Carolina. Steve Forbes can obviously hang in there. Bob Dole has kind of got to win, and may well. Pat Buchanan is hoping for an upset, and... He's got to prove to people that he's still in the race. And then what occurred in Arizona was just an unhappy mistake. And he's still in the race. And the, the big Mo is, you know, still with him. Let me give you the latest I've got. Earlier in the week, 
a Georgia poll shows Dole with 31%, Buchanan 23%, that's a pretty big delta, Lamar Alexander 16%, and the winner of Arizona, Forbes, is just 6% in single digits. So Lamar has a bit of a home field advantage. Forbes doesn't seem to be carrying very much interest in the South. Always the possibility of the wild card Buchanan doing it to Dole. If Dole were to lose uh, in Georgia, for example, um, and South Carolina, he'd be in trouble. I think he is. I think Buchanan is right to Dole um, candidacy would uh, uh, disintegrate uh, rather quickly. So this from Georgia. But check it out. Coming up next week after South Carolina. Nine primaries next week alone. Nine. So this whole thing is going to shake out very quickly. Alan Keyes, eliminated from most recent uh, debates, is so angry. So angry. And Alan Keyes, by the way, uh, is probably uh, the, the, the most articulate uh, save uh, Pat Buchanan, who is also very articulate, but Alan Keyes is just tremendous to listen to. He's on a hunger strike. He's so angry that until they allow him to debate, he's not eating. Can you imagine that? All right, uh, to the phones. By the way, if you want a copy of last night's program, a very important program, with Richard Hoagland, for tonight's program, a very uh, important and very strange, uh, strange program, one of the stranger ones I've done on radio, and I've done some pretty weird ones, you can get copies, you do have copies, at 1-800-917-4278. Let me give that to you again. This is strange stuff tonight. Woo! one 800 9174278. Yeah, I think I've got one other thing I've got to get on. Uh, we're going to have a book signing on March 16th in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon. And it's going to be at about high noon at the Oregon Convention Center in Portland, beginning officially at about high noon. It'll be interesting because we will have done at that point a show with Richard the previous night. Get done with the show, get on an airplane, go up to Oregon, up Portland, and we'll be doing a book signing. The only one I'm ever going to do, save the books I'm going to sign on our cruise. This will be the only book signing I ever do. So it's a one-shot affair. Hope to uh, see you there. In the meantime, if you want a copy of my book, either the hardcover version, The Art of Talk, which is just selling like crazy now, and so thank you all, or the audio copy of my book, which is now out, just out. When you order either one of them, you get this very special 5 by 7 color photograph of me, which I have signed in a gold pen. It's really quite pretty. And is quite flammable. It actually appeared on the front page of the uh, LA Times calendar section when they did it. Story. You can get it now. 
but I don't know for how much longer. All right? Here's what I want you to do. When you call the number I'm about to give, ask the operator if you're going to get the special edition. If she says yes, that means you will get a copy of that photograph free of charge with either one of the books you order. And if she says no, that means supplies have been exhausted and then you won't be angry at me. So you be sure and ask the operator, please. The number is 1-800-864-7991. That's 1-800-864-7991. And again, I promise you, we will get to the bottom of the story on this satellite. Weird stuff. And we will get photographs and we will share them with you. West of the Rockies, you're on air. Yeah. Alex, this is uh, Nighthawk from IRC. And we're wondering uh, if you could give out that URL for uh, the satellite pictures. I've got about a million of them here now, my friend. Um, I, I really can't. Uh, if you didn't get it, you read it twice. Um, I didn't get it all either. No, it's the one you got in on the fact that uh, you asked for someone to send to your email. Oh, yes. Um... It's in a pile of papers about a mile high. I'll see if I can dredge it out. They're all, they're all wanting it, Art. I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, I'll see what I can do. I can't make any promises. I've got about a thousand faxes here that have come in. So I'll try and go through it uh, at the top of the hour and, uh, and dredge it out. Very good, Art. Thank you. All right, thank you. And uh, by the way, are the people on the URL, uh, have they made it over to the... Uh, uh, the uh, real audio section. Are they talking about that at all? Yes, they have. I've tried it. Um, some of the audio feed sometimes seems uh, a bit low. Well, they're working on it. I mean, this is uh, up within the last few days or something. It's a pretty neat deal. Uh, you know, people can actually hear you now where they don't get full coverage of the show. Uh, well, there is that here in the U.S., and then, as you well know, it's worldwide. Right. So they're going to be listening in London. All right, my friend, thank you very much. I'll see if I can get that back out. This is CBC. Thank you. Now, and here I am. Oh, I have an idea. I have an idea. You guys know me. This could really be fun. As you know, well, but we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to go international here in a minute. I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but we're going to do it. Listen, what you're hearing right now is Cusco. It's a group called Cusco, German, C-U-S-C. It's a lot of the bumble. Um, I just have a couple questions here. Um, I'm wondering if Cuba may not be a, you know, just a distraction and that maybe we ought to be looking to uh, hard here tomorrow in the next few days. Or if uh, maybe, you well, know, if you think that, look. Saturday is going to be a big news day. It usually isn't, but Saturday we've got the primary, and um, we've got this thing going on in Cuba. And all eyes are going to be either in one direction or the other, and certainly not up, if you follow me. Right. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's a, a chance to check out our new uh, covered weaponry. <laughs> of course. I, I can't say it's weaponry. But I can certainly say, based on what Hoagland said in a million factors here, it's that something's going on. Okay. Uh, my name is Jim, by the way. I'm listening in the, out of Kansas City. KCMO. Right. Thank you, Jim, and thanks, KCMO. All right, thanks, Art. Take care. 
So there you got it. I feel as Jim feels. Uh, there is something going on, and the news focus is going to be on the primaries. The news focus is going to be on Cuba. And uh, properly so, these are events worthy of coverage. But it's going to make it awfully easy not to cover some other things. If you suffer from headaches, neck aches, sports injuries, low back discomfort, arthritis, rheumatism, bursitis, menstrual pain, joint pain, any kind of pain, let me tell you about Leprina. No more waiting for pain relievers to kick in, no more settling for alternative pain relievers just because your system is aspirin sensitive. Just spray on Leprina topical aspirin and enjoy soothing relief without side effects. It really is that easy, and it works. It actually penetrates the skin right down to where the pain is. Remember the name, Leprina. That's Leprina. And you're hearing a lot about this remarkable product, believe me. I've used Leprina on my bad back, and the fast-acting results are truly amazing. Spray it on, the pain's gone. Some pain sufferers are calling the almost instant results miraculous, but you cannot get it at your local drugstore. If you want fast-acting topical pain relief, just order Leprina by calling 1-800-308-4565. That's 1-800-308-4565. The truly reasonable cost is a bargain for this revolutionary new product. And when you call, be sure and ask the folks at Health Naturally how you can get Leprina at an even greater savings. Call 1-800-308-4565. Just spray it on and the pain is gone. It really does work. As a matter of fact, again, we're holding open one line, please, for international calls only, uh, whether it be by the Internet or by one of our very powerful affiliates. Uh, it is area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. And everybody in this country, in Canada and Mexico, has got to give us a break here and... Uh, let these people internationally try to get through. And then there's this. Dear Art, I also heard on Togo about the 200 people dead from the, again in quotes, flu in, the, in some remote islands in Indonesia. The report compared it to a similar incident that occurred in Africa last year. There's another very weird report folks uh good morning you're on the air where are you calling from please uh kodiak alaska okay sir well we're trying to hold this that line is. we're trying to hold this line open for international calls i see i thought maybe i was out far enough for that to be a basketball but apparently i don't know thank you very much uh we're very happy to hear from you in kodiak um but we are trying to reach way out europe the pacific uh south america um in other words, points uh, way out. And so we're holding that line open for people way out there. Area code 702-727-1222. Good morning. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, McMinnville, Oregon. I just wanted to... Okay, well, no, sorry. That's on our international line. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. I have a question about your cruise. Yes. Um, when you're gone, are you going to be a repeat on the radio? Is going to be repealing on the cruise? Oh, we haven't decided yet. You know, it's still... Uh, that, how long is that cruise going to be? It's going to be August 3rd. It's a 12-day cruise. I hate to have a repeat all that time. Well, I doubt you will. Okay, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Goodbye. <laughs> Wildcard line, you're on here. You have a stuff with um, Richard Hoagland? Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah, I kind of think I do it a couple years ago with the Mars Observer. It, is, it really is. It's reminiscent of that, isn't it? And 
the book I got that I'm holding now, the Monuments of Mars, yes. I bought it one week before the Mars Observer went out. And I was so excited about the Mars Observer. It was headlined on U.S. News and World Report as approaching Mars. And it did a small article about Hoagland in it. And I was showing people pictures of his book and what was in it and saying they've either got to show it or cover it up. Yes. And lo and behold, they covered it up. Well, that, of course, is also the opinion of Richard Hoagland, as you're well aware. And I, I have no way of knowing. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm slightly technically inclined. Uh, just, just to note, I am taking an astronomy class at Palomar. Yes, sir. And in their um, uh, observatory, or that is, um, what is it, not observatory, where you go to see uh, the program and stuff, they're yes. taking it seriously for the first time. I was very skeptical that they would. They were talking about the planets, etc., etc. And they actually showed a slide of the face, and they made a comment at the end, is there life or not, or has there been? And so the uh, mainstream is starting to take it seriously. I appreciate your call, sir. Thank you. Um, here's that fact that the people on the uh, chat channel, IRC chat channel, asked you to locate. The web address that you guys wanted is http colon uh, two forward slashes liftoff that's l-i-f-t-o-f-f dot m as in mary s as in sugar f as in fox c as in charlie dot nasa n-a-s-a dot g-o-v as in government forward slash S-T-S dash 75 forward slash media forward slash media underscore image I-M-A-G-E dot H-T-M-L God, I hate these addresses. I hate them. So hopefully somebody will just uh, send this to me. They have got to do something about these addresses. My webpage can be accessed by simply going www.artbell.com. Now, that's, I guess, because the server is centrally located in the Internet or something, but my God, the address. So hopefully that will be emailed to me. Uh, we will get it up on the bulletin board. And by the way, while I'm on the subject of computer stuff, our video program is available now, I believe, only on our bulletin board. The updated version with the readme file is on our bulletin board. If you want it, you're going to want to download a file called video.zip. Video.zip. And our bulletin board number, which is good 24 hours a day, is area code 702 7 271709. Now, there's an updated version with a readme file, and it's called video.zip, and you get it at area code 702-727-1709. It is a color with motion and sound video telephone. When you get it, put it in Windows. It's a, uh, a IBM uh, incompatible program. Not for Mac yet. And uh, put it in Windows and just simply click on the little telephone there 
and you'll see the most amazing sight you've ever seen in your whole life. You'll see me sitting here doing my program, or you'll be able to call the seaplane company during the day and see them work. And most would sound. It's, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And good morning. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, Edmond, Oklahoma. Okay, we're holding this open now for international calls only, sir. Oh! I thank you for the call. Um, and once again, let me say it again so that everybody knows. See, if, if the phone gets jammed up with everybody else like that calling um, from uh, domestic sources, the people internationally don't have a chance. So if you are way out there, area code 702 727 one two 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 seven oh two in the USA seven oh two seven two seven one two two two. East of the Rockies, you're on air. Yeah, hey, let me turn my radio down, Art. Please. It's important to do that right away, folks, when you get on the air, so have it close at hand. Hey, um I'm a uh uh year old. I've never uh, voted in my life. But I wanted everybody to know that there are a lot of me that are out there. A lot of you. Huh? You've never, you're 40 years old and you've never voted. Yeah, all, all except for uh, union business. Mm -hmm. Where are you, by the way? Uh, I'm in Center, Colorado. All right. And, uh, Why have you never voted? I mean, to get to be 40 and never vote. Uh, that's well, I've always left that up to the people who thought they knew what they were doing. <laughs> and apparently they, you know... <laughs> Are you sure you do not underestimate yourself, sir? Well, I, I am registered now. Oh, you are? And you're going to vote? Oh, yes. And I don't care if Stephen Herman is uh, running for president, he will get my vote. Uh, excuse me? Yeah. Uh, to get Clinton out of office. Oh, I see. I don't care who is. Is he anybody but Clinton, even D.W. Herman, eh? Exactly. Well, at least you're motivated. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it, it took him to do it. I was afraid that you had moved from uh, total non-caring to um, <laughs> a, a, a total uh, a, a vote without uh, any reason at all. Uh, I appreciate the call. I'm glad you're motivated now to vote. That's good. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Let's try once more here on my uh, so-called international line. You're on here. Hello. Hello. Several days now talking about selective tennis. There is 
nothing else like this product in the world. It will double your daytime reception. It will cut out 90% of the fading at night. It really works. I mean, it's one of those things. understanding of the way harp works is that there's a very, very large antenna farm, I've got photographs of it, that produces a very wide signal where it begins, but where it hits the ionosphere, or where they want it to hit the ionosphere, it's a very narrow, very powerful beam. In other words, it, it operates in the exact opposite way most antennas uh, arrays uh, would operate. Yes, in fact, that's how uh, Bernard Eastman got the original patents by showing that huge difference in, in capability. And it's the way they fire um, the antenna array, the way they sequence that firing, to cause it to focus the beam as opposed to letting it um, dissipate with distance. Which means they could hit a very small spot. Like, like for example, the dangling uh, 12... Oh, yeah, it'd be easy to target the, the, this elf antenna that's <laughs> orbiting the Earth. Now, let me read you something interesting on page 7. <laughs> You know, this is going to become the greatest hint of HARP. <laughs> right. Um, this is page 7. It starts out, HARP Unique Features Current Plan. Remember, this was 95. Uh, we, we, we should tell people that this document that we're reading from, Nick, uh, if you turn to the front, the copy I have says, Department of Defense Information Paper, Service Slash Agency, Department of the Air Force, Appropriation Account, RDT and EAF, which is Air Force, Budget activity number three, advanced development. Subject, high-frequency active auroral research program. That's what HARP stands for. One, question slash request. Staff assistant for the Senate Appropriations Committee, Subcommittee on Defense, requested a brief program overview and status update on the HARP program. Two, response. HARP is a research program developing a facility to study fundamental physical principles of the Earth's upper atmosphere. Key potential technology applications are in the areas of detection of subterranean tunnels slash structures and communications. I'll get back to that in a minute. Located at the former over-the-horizon backscatter site at Kokona, Alaska, the facility will consist of a high-frequency HF phased array transmitter. This will be complemented by numerous scientific diagnostic instruments, both active and passive, to observe the artificial effects created by the interaction of the high-power HF beam on the ionosphere. At present, a developmental prototype has been constructed, consisting of a 48-antenna array with a maximum re-radiated power of 360 kilowatts. Now, Art, as a parenthetical note, all the numbers in this document are hyperdimensional. 48, 360, et cetera, et cetera, which raises an interesting question as to hidden agendas. Fabrication of this equipment was completed in November 1994, and testing is in progress. Remember, this was a report as of 29 November 95 on my document here. All right, do the two of you agree on what HARP is? Well, wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me get... I've got three more sentences here. Then right, go ahead. Go ahead. Several pieces of scientific diagnostic equipment are already in place to monitor background characteristics of the aurora ionosphere over Gacona and to provide a baseline for the radio frequency spectral environment. 
a capability to interrogate the diagnostic instruments over the Internet is being implemented, which will enable principal investigators to monitor their experiments directly from their laboratories. In other words, gentlemen, they don't even have to be at the site anymore. They can be anywhere in the world and run this thing by computer like we're talking tonight. Right, that's been in the, um, actually was in the specification for the construction of the facility right from the very beginning. But as I understand it, the EPA and the FDC and the watchdogs supposedly looking at this in terms of local interference and all that have been assuring the local residents in Alaska that there are personnel on site and nothing is being done without human supervision, et cetera, et cetera. Right, they have a watchman on site. <laughs> totally ignorant of the scientific application. And that, that's the extent of it. Now, they have put people on site from the University of Alaska, you know, to watch computer screens and so forth. But, you know, what they're actually, whether they're running the experiments or just gatekeepers is um, difficult to say. This document, which now, all right, the document I was reading from is a memorandum. There was a request from the Senate, the Senate subcommittee, by someone on staff or some senator for of Maryland. The committee was composed of the following members, and then it lists the committee chairman and the membership, and what I find stunningly interesting, along with Paul Bernhardt and Dennis Papadopoulos and Herbert Carlson and William Gordon, is the name Roland D. Sigdayoff. Art, do you recognize Roland Sigdayoff? I do not, no. Roland Sigdayoff was the chief science advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev and head of the Soviet Union's space program. He is a plasma physicist. He is over here now as a distinguished professor of physics at the University of Maryland. He is a current member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He is a member of the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Sciences. And his former boss just entered the presidential sweepstakes race to become president of Russia I and was on Larry King last night. Yeah, at 0.5% approval. Listen, I, I want to again ask, do you two agree on what TARP is? It's nothing... All right, let me tell you what it's not. It's not what they've been telling us it is. It, in fact, I think it has little connection to anything that's in the open literature. Meaning not to heat the ionosphere, not to look for underground caverns? Well, not as pure science. I think we are light years beyond, you know, probing. I think, you know, beginning in the 1960s, we put up alouettes. We put up a ton of satellites orbiting geophysical observatories. We've had radars, tropospheric radars. We've had dew-line, Bermuda systems. I mean, if the Air Force really thinks it has to characterize the ionosphere in the 90s, where we've been beaming high-frequency radio energy into the ionosphere since the 40s? Yes, sir. Okay. The point is, we're down to the level of technical application, and the question is, what is it really being used for? And that's why the numbers are important. The acronym is important. And its sighting is important relevant to the hyperdimensional grid on this planet. All right, Dr. Baggett, what do you... What would you say, aren't there? I mean, do you seem to be in agreement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, I, I, I agree. It's not just uh, uh, an, uh, an, you know, an ionosphere experiment to learn about what the ionosphere is. I think I agree that, that we already know that. What I believe and I hadn't have believed is that the prototype for a weapon system and you know, the application's potential 
know, beyond what, you know, what we've defined in our work, I would not disagree with um, what Richard is saying. I have less knowledge of what he's saying, so it's something that I'll need to come up to speed on over time. But, you know, I've never believed this to be a purely scientific research project. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, it just smells to high heaven when you research the data, when you look at the material, you know, it's just not there. I mean, it, you know, in, the, in, the, in looking at the operators of this system, and how they've developed the technologies is too big to hide. So you, you know, you, you develop the mask behind which you hide, and that's exactly what they've done by characterizing it as, as a um, purely scientific research project. The reason it's getting a lot of money right now is the head of the Senate um, Committee on Defense, is Senator Stevens from Alaska. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this is the um, pot from which the money flows. You know, and he's hyping it here during his election year as uh, this great godsend. One of the important yeah, it's, it's a wonderful backyard Alaskan pork barrel. And the thing that's happened here that's interesting, and one of the sort of the side notes, is if they are, in fact, testing this um, earth-penetrating tomography application, which was set as a priority for the, for the Senate. Uh, Nick, you better describe what earth-penetrating tomography is. Right. This is the idea of looking into the earth several miles down of the earth and, and to look at the interior. And the way they characterize it is, for locating underground nuclear facilities and um, tunnels and so forth. But one of the, the, the thing that's interesting here is the local newspaper, which has the largest circulation in Alaska, the only thing they've printed on her is um, this particular application early on as being extremely good for the state because it would also have the potential of locating underground um, oil deposits, natural gas deposits, because the strata that they're formed within is so much different. Um, it's porous material, much different than the surrounding rock. What's interesting is the location of HARP is within 20, 30 miles of the Alaska pipeline, which is only running at about 65% capacity right now mm-hmm. in terms of oil. The state is in a financial crunch because of its oil revenue declines. The other thing that's interesting is by testing its application at this particular juncture where our legislature is in session, if they were able to say to the state legislature, there's a strong indication that there may be oil reserves because it is situated within um, a potential oil basin that's been defined by USGS for years and years, in fact, a couple of decades. If they actually found something there at this particular juncture as the controversy over this technology is rising, they wouldn't be able to co-opt, I think, our legislature into supporting the project as opposed um, to standing against it because of the potential revenue stream developed by immediate reserves located close to a pipeline that's not at capacity. It's on the road system. The logistics are extremely good for developing the fields they could discover one, plus the ability to generate a much higher rate of revenue return on a known deposit that you could define the perimeters of in terms of leasing. And within this, you have native holdings, um, land holdings. Uh, my father was responsible for the uh, Native Clan Settlement Act, which gave Native Alaskans 44 million acres. Gentlemen, hold it right there for a moment. We're at a break point. We'll be right back. I believe you'll be able to chat the two of you during the news. And we will be back. This is CBC. on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. 
First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Once again, here I am. My guests are Richard Hoagland, a NASA consultant, science advisor to Walter Cronkite, and Engstrom Science Award winner in New York, and Dr. Nick Beggett, author of Angels Don't Play This Harp in Alaska, where harp is. Back to them in a moment. You hear the music you're hearing right now on my show about every night. It is awesome. It is cool. Today won't. All right. Uh, back now to my two guests. Here's a quick article. This will set it up very well for you. This is from the Anchorage Daily News, March 7th. Glenn Allen. Local residents worried about a government uh, a rural pro research project in Alaska gathered at the Caribou Cafe a few days ago to watch a video about the program and share their concerns. They viewed a video that included a piece on the High Frequency Active Oral Research Program, or HARP, and a copy of the segment on the project from the Sightings Television Program. The video suggests that HARP is actually a secret military project. Rather than the military-sponsored scientific research project, HARP spokesman John Hexler uh, says it is. Some local residents are worried the project has potentially negative side effects, which might include the potential to change the weather, the ability to scramble brain waves, the ability to zap the sky, and fears it could open a hole in the ionosphere and trigger a chain reaction that is much worse than the ozone hole. Others fear the project could disrupt communications, stun people with electrical charges, change migratory patterns in salmon, and affect the DNA in embryos. The main concern presented in the video is that HARP could lead to a CIA-sponsored futuristic weapon. That's the Anchorage Daily News, March 7th. Gentlemen, you're back on the air. Well, that side article was... Uh was, was actually uh, interesting. And in fact, we'll be up in Glen Allen speaking probably to that same gathered group here this next weekend. Um, it's you know it's gotten a lot of a lot of play. We've you know we've brought the issue forward here. We've done a number of lectures here in Alaska. We've been on lots of radio all over the country. And you know what we find is each time that we go on the air, we get inundated with uh, another landslide of documents, information. Some not connected, some connected, but this most that with the space shuttle that you folks have been on the air with the last uh, week or so has certainly raised again you know, serious questions from our perspective. This is supposedly a research project. Every time that we've you know looked at it, you know we just can't see pure research in it. All we can see is military application, and I think what Richard has been saying is, is uh, probably very very accurate. And what we're seeing is more and more confirmation of the accuracy of it. And uh, you know here we are again talking about something supposed to be open science, but we have to peel the onions, onion another layer to find out the next uh, bits and pieces of information. What's interesting here now is our legislature's in session, and with these meetings occurring and the particular probing that we were talking about earlier, what may happen at this point is a collapsion of our legislature by showing this wonderful geophysical probing applications they're characterizing it with some demonstrated uh, uh, find. And that, right now, we have a legislator, Gene Cabina, who is calling for state affairs um, uh, committee of our state legislature to open hearings on the topic, and hopefully 
you know, people will bang on our legislature early enough in the game to get those hearings. And, and get well, that, 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 would keep the, that would certainly keep the money flowing because a lot of people don't know this, but Alaskans realize a yearly dividend uh, from, from oil, don't they? That, that's right. And it amounts to approximately $1,000 per person. Um, so like a family of four, she's But Nick, Nick, you know, I, I, at this point, I, I, I do want to beg to differ with you. I don't think that the purpose of this is anything as trivial as looking for oil or making money for Alaska. I think that's the kind of local, you know, uh, gravy train that has gotten people like Stevens and others to support this. Right, that's know, what I'm suggesting. It's kind of lure. That's the math. But I think it stakes a much bigger, and I do not think, in fact, they're military. I think, you know, with all due respect, a, a well overused phrase these days uh, that that's another red herring and I don't mean that you're proposing it I, I, I think you sincerely believe but in terms of the parameter in which you've been looking that's a logical potential explanation for the inexplicable what Art knows full well is that our team has been looking at things that are so stunning and extraordinary that the inexplicable becomes almost the norm so let me raise some additional ideas for what Hart really may be up to. And I must say, gentlemen, that I really wasn't all that concerned with this thing until the shuttle incident made me kind of look at it, and I began putting the numbers together. And as you know, Art, that's what we do over here. All right, but Richard, I think you really do both agree. What Nick was saying was that's the local... Uh, political slant to keep the dollars oh, flowing. Sure, sure. flowing oh, into I, heart, I, I, that, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I totally agree with that, but that's a floor and hole. Hart is not to make money, it's not to find oil, it's not to feed in the end. It's not, it's not a CIA plot to control people's brains or to do any of these things. I believe it is part of the global planetary uh, quickening uh, that you and I have discussed. Now, let me, let me, let me raise a theory here, a hypothesis. And then you guys can take shots at it, if you will, all right? A person who should be participating in this discussion tonight, who is not here yet, but will be, I believe, is Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. Nick, are you familiar with Graham's work? I don't believe so. All right. Graham is a former reporter for the London Economist and the London Times. He is a hell of a writer and a hell of a nice guy and extremely interested in the truth, as, as I am. And we have met, uh, he spent the last weekend here when... Um, the NBC show on the Mysterious Origins of Man was airing. NBC brought him over to do some promos. So we had an occasion to spend the entire weekend together going over a lot of data, both in terms of our work on the moon and Mars and in terms of his interest in former ancient civilizations which time and, and uh, events have erased from current human memory. And one of the things that is really converging here is that it's becoming more and more probable that we are not the first. That Art and Nick, we are heir to a legacy of preceding previous cycles of high technological civilization on this planet that for whatever reason have disappeared, leaving only traces, both physical traces and legendary historical, textual, or artifact traces. Mm -hmm. right? In that model, if there is a precipitant catastrophe which overwhelms the human species on a periodic or quasi-periodic basis, in terms of Graham's research and my own, you know, independent, and many, many, many others, all right, it looks as if maybe there is an effort to save some people when these 
times approach where whatever happens is going to happen. More, are you listening? More earthquakes, more volcanoes. Yeah. Uh, so leading yeah. towards some great catastrophic uh, right. occurrence. Yeah. So one of the models has been that when the previous civilizations realized their number was up, a, a group, an elite, tried to preserve themselves through availing themselves of various options, up to and including digging big holes in the ground and hiding and hoping it would go away or hoping they could come out after it had gone away. Now what's interesting is that in the American Southwest, not far from you, in fact surrounding you, Mark, yes. tonight, yes. there are several Native American tribes who have some remarkable legends. I've personally gone and researched them on Second Mesa. It turns out that Graham and I were there within a week of each other and didn't even know each other at that point. So our work was converging to try to get a historical perspective from the elders of these tribes as to their own history, their oral traditions, in terms of prophecies for the future, the so-called Hopi prophecies being the best known of these ideas that time is cyclic, that civilizations are cyclic, and there have been preceding worlds or suns or epochs of which this one is going to come to an end like the other ones did. And uh, there are various discussions as to how much time remains before events again transpire which wiped out preceding civilization. Now, if this is more than myth, and there is increasing substantive, documentable, reproducible evidence. scientific evidence. There is, yes. Uh, and, and you have spent many programs, and I'm sure you're going to spend a lot more. I saw the program, the mysterious artist. Yes. There, so, yes. All right. Well, I have been quietly, through my sources, digging into the evidentiary record, and i got to say that I think that Graham is 100% right, and we're going to have some very interesting news to report soon on that front. Now, why is Hoagland and company, the Mars mission, interested in ancient technical civilizations on Earth? Well, the obvious answer, guys, is that if, if we're not the first, then maybe the stuff we're seeing out in the solar system is not E.T. stuff, but our stuff. And we have just forgotten that we used to do those great and wondrous things because several intervening cycles of destruction and memory loss have intervened so that we're now down to the titration of the titration of the titration and almost nobody remembers except in myth and legend and Native American tradition. Well, somebody uh, dug great holes, then there might be interest in finding those great holes. Oh, Art, let's go to the head of the class. <laughs> and who would have the resources and the ability to lie on a global scale <laughs> and carry out such a program? Yeah. The military. Yeah. I think HARP is looking for the holes. Now, why would they be interested in the holes? Well, two reasons. One is to hide in them, all right? <laughs> and the other, which I think is more likely, suppose we're not the first. Suppose someone has put caches of, you know, electronics and libraries and storehouses of information and other material buried deep, deep, deep with a technology that we can't even hope to match. Sir, wouldn't our guys like to find that stuff? Wouldn't it be like Christmas? All that neat stuff they could turn into new weapons, and that's where the military comes back into its own. To a lot of people, this is going to sound really wild, but uh, it's not as wild as the Soviet Union collapsing. And the former, the last president of the Soviet Union resigning in disgrace, 
to suddenly be reborn as a new candidate in the run for the presidency of Russia, and his principal science advisor sitting on a committee at the University of Maryland writing a document for the U.S. Senate on HARP. <laughs> All right, look, Richard, let me stop you. I want to ask a quick question. I may be out in left field. This comes in uh, by uh, from Texas. But if this tether allowed a charge to reach the shuttle, could this cause a major problem when they hit atmosphere or touch down? In other words, what happens to the charge when they begin to re-enter? Oh, it's, it's leaked off into the atmosphere. So there will be no additional danger no. to the shuttle? No, 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 no. There, there, it, it, was a, it was a discharge. It was gone. The electrons flowed back into the ionosphere. Everything equated out to zero potential. But it was that instant of discharge which caused the electrical problems with the computers because of this phenomena called EMP, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, and I am seriously concerned tonight about these guys' safety because, as you all know, computers are very fragile. It doesn't take much to make them stop working. I've been fighting with mine all day. And the idea that those guys are dependent totally on computers, even if they're backups. Remember, all these backups were exposed to the same savage blast of radiation. That's true. When that thing went, cut loose. Now, the shuttle electronics are hardened militarily. Remember, the shuttle was designed by the Defense Department. It was not NASA. It was the DOD which basically wrote the specs for the space shuttle because it was at the height of the Cold War. It was when Reagan was calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, and they wanted enormous footprints for, you know, left and right so they could land almost anywhere. They wanted, you know, it to be able to survive nuclear weapons banged off near... I mean, they, they put all kinds of overspecs in it. So I think that's why maybe only one computer and a program has suffered some damage, and not all of them. But because there's a screen of deception between us and the truth in a supposedly open space agency, we're not going to know until these guys touch down this morning whether, in fact, this is much more serious than they've been letting on. Well, I've listened to both of you very carefully on separate occasions, and both of you seem to feel there is this compartmentalization uh, going on within uh, NASA, within HARP, that may have some sort of commonality about it. Uh, Dr. Begich, what do, you, do you think that might be so? Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole nature of weapons development. I mean, they compartmentalize to the point where you have active researchers developing small components that standing alone, you know, they, they do stand alone. They look fine, they, you know, they appear fine, but when you start to draw the linkages, bringing them together at some high level uh, within the Pentagon, then you start to take take a different form and a different shape, and I think that's what we have, certainly in the HARP program, and, you know, without um, taking away from anything that Richard said, I think that what he's, what he's demonstrating is, again, another level, another layering of um, potential applications for this technology that go way, way beyond what the military has characterized it as, and again, to, you know, the, the expressed concern, here we have an effect on this dangling tether that nobody anticipated that demonstrates once again our limited knowledge in playing God with the ionosphere. And again, you know, we're looking at those nonlinear effects, those effects that don't make sense logically and yet they occur that could create, precipitate um, huge, huge problems on the planet, which we've spoken about on your program before. All right, here's what Dr. Beggett says, uh, um, Richard, that um, a very small focus of intense energy at one point in the atmosphere, or in the ionosphere, rather, um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Bates, but you believe could produce a kind of a cascading effect throughout the ionosphere. Correct. Well, it 
isn't throughout the ionosphere. The idea there is that if you focus these beams, and these beams are steerable, they have 30 degree plus or minus coverage from Alaska. As the diagram in the Senate document demonstrates, you know, the global reach of the, of the facility is much bigger than one might imagine under even conventional, you know, uh, reasoning and, and uh, extrapolation. What happens is uh, if you focus these beams along uh, magnetic field lines, Mm -hmm. and you create an intense uh, what's called precipitation of particles what happens is the the uh, the uh, electromagnetic the um, charged particles that are spiraling around the magnetic field lines that from the van allen radiation belts are basically diverted and can be dumped into the atmosphere creating in effect artificial aurora and what what this What's intriguing about this is that for some years we have been considering, you know, in the literature, the, the UFO crowd particularly, that if, if somebody wanted to stage an event, a really spectacular event, what? Uh, they need high technology to do it. And this makes a dandy way to stage an event. Remember Irwin Allen's movie, the one with, with the, with the uh, uh, Richard Basehart and the Sequest and all that? Oh, yes. Uh, the day the the uh, radiation belt caught fire or something like that, you could, with HARP, precipitate the most spectacular particle dumping and artificial aurora across the entire northern tier of, and southern tier uh, of the auroral zone, including most of the United States, all of Europe, the Soviet Union. You know, you could, you could create the most spectacular fireworks by simply triggering with your own input of energy, much larger, massive, natural forces. So you're both really saying the same thing. Do you but agree? But the question would be why. Why would you want to do this? Well, okay, you know, let's, learn. let's find out if you agree, Doctor. Uh, I don't disagree with that. In fact, uh, we were talking about ancient um, ancient um, prophecies, so to speak, earlier. There's an uh, Alaska Native prophecy that says that at the end of the age, that uh, through man's manipulation, the sky will turn red like fire. And it's interesting correlation to what uh, Richard just described. You know, now we go back to the number of antennas and the number of transmitters. I mean, this almost sounds like numerology art, but we have some evidence of some levels of this government playing with this physics almost like a ritual magic, a talisman, all right? This physics almost like a ritual magic, a talisman, all right? Where if you do certain things by the numbers, while you're it's supposed to happen. And it's very interesting, Nick, that you bring up these uh, native traditions, because it, it looks like somebody is almost trying to follow a script. All right, you two, on that note, the script note, hold on, we'll be right back. We'll do another half hour. You're listening to Dr. Nick Beckett in Alaska, Richard Hoagland in New York. I'm Art Bell in the high desert. Stay right where you are. 1595. All you've got to lose is your tax debt. That's 1-800-34-NO-TAX. 1-800-34-NO-TAX. All right, this may seem off topic, but in a way it's not. And I want to ask both of you this question. Uh, here's a fact from Hawaii, Jerry in Hawaii. Art, what if the government discovered a simple 15-minute medical procedure that would increase lifespan on Earth to 150 years, and you'd be in good physical condition, 
till about the age of 145 to 50, and then the body would stop in a period of one month without pain and suffering to the person. Which of the choices do you think would happen? A. The government would announce the new medical procedure, and we all live to 150 years. B. The government keeps it quiet and only uses the medical procedure on certain chosen people. Or C. There is a fire, and the discoverer and all his notes are destroyed. The discovery is lost. How do you, what, what, what do you gentlemen think would occur? Nick, do I go first? Yeah, I think probably C. Uh, just, I, I just I, think that's I, probably I think the major. I think C, too. You both, uh, boy, boy, boy. You know why? Well, why? They dare not let it out. So it has to be C. It has to be C. Nick? Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you have people living 150 years, and when you look at it, it's the kind of thing you'd be able to hide under national security because of the economic ramifications. I mean, how can a, can a government with Social Security starting at 65 survive? How can you have a base of you know, resources to provide for you know, what would potentially be large numbers of people that just expand rapidly and continue to stay alive? I mean, the whole system isn't built around 150-year life cycles. Well, but it's even worse than that. 150-year-old people, remember, the older you get, the smarter you get. Just as you begin to figure out this whole system, you wind up peeling over. If the median age of adult, wise people, voters, progressed up 20, 30, 40 years, then all the games that go on, all the money that's hidden, all the larceny, all the... Lies, all the stealing, you know, in the primary season, folks, you can tell, all that would have to change. Yeah, they can't live. There's no way that they would allow it out there. No yeah, way. They can't. And, and if you're talking about good health, which is what was described, you're talking about people that are actively engaged in the world they live in, and so you're not going to see that potential. Well, the reason, I, the reason I ask you both this question is because the way it relates to either one of the uh, conclusions that you two have come to, uh, you both believe, obviously, that HARP is not what they say it is. You may believe it is something different, each of you believing it's uh, uh, something different, but you both agree, don't you, that it's not what they're telling us. That's right. I think it is so much bigger, and it is so connected to the other parts of the research that we've been doing and discussing on your program. Well, you're just a little farther out on the tether, Richard. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get that in, didn't you? Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, let me give you another data point. Remember, this project tries to go by science. Uh, no matter what our critics say, all right? And the way you gauge whether you're dealing with a science is if there are specific, testable predictions. Yes. So this is where I need your audience, Art. They've been stunningly, you know, sterling this past week. I've had a ton of very neat, sophisticated, and extraordinarily helpful faxes come in, particularly from the folks in Alaska. And if they're listening, I really want to thank them for their cooperation and providing me all this neat stuff and just keep those cards and letters coming in. Our fax number, if you want to send us information on a range of topics in our list, what we need is 201-271-1703, and Art will repeat that several times, I'm sure. Yeah, and you know what, Richard? I want to ask for a volunteer right now. You've got a lot of materials. We need to get it up on the Internet, but we can't do that unless we can get the materials transferred uh, from their fax form into appropriate... Uh, HTML uh, code. HTML code to uh, put them up on the internet. So we need a volunteer 
um, who could do that. And if there's anybody who would like to volunteer, please uh, fax Richard at 201-271-1703, and then Richard will see to it that you get those materials, won't he, yes, Richard? We, yes, we will. All right. Well, we are, see, I have been avoiding the web until we were ready for putting our own research on and even as I speak tonight, we're moving much faster than, than we were before. Uh, before our event in Washington, I would like to have our website up and active. And uh, Best way for you to do it, right? Look, Richard, my website's taken 10,000 hits a day. The best place you can be right now. I understand. Now. I understand. We're in, I'm, I'm, we're in total agreement. But what we found, though, is that someone has not written codes to translate from a fax or even a document file into the language that the web uses. Okay, well, we need a good typist. That's Someone all has to physically type all this by understanding. All right, so we're looking for a volunteer, whoever it is, 201-271-1703. Fox Richard will get you the stuff. Now, let's... let's, uh, right, so let me, let, me, let me continue on the kind of listing here. Um, if, by, by, by getting into this, through this tether business, and understanding that Harp is probably because we both could imagine even a few years ago, Sure. For one thing, let me let me let me you know put the stake in the heart of the military thing. If this is a military weapon, if the security agencies and the CIA and the DOD and all that are using this as some kind of cover for a military weapon, for God's sake, why have we included Russians in on it? Go back to your document and read the list of Russians participating in the steering committee. Absolutely. This is a shared project between us and the other superpower on the planet for stakes that are bigger than the Cold War, which never really was real in the first place, all right? So what big stakes are there? There are only two. One is alien contact, and the other is survival. And I think that it is looking for the, for the evidence, the hard evidence, that in fact, we are not the first. And the way you hide information these days is you do it under multiple levels of military security. You talk about national security, and everybody's eyes glaze over, and senators don't ask questions. And you can do anything you damn well please. Yeah. Now, there's another data point. Because remember, in, in Graham's scenario, and in uh, Rand Flemeth, the, uh, the Canadian researchers who've been looking into this and from which Graham you know, borrowed much material, and even Charles Hapgood, who was probably one of the first. Uh, by the way, did you know that Charles Hapgood was, was CIA? Or, no. He was OSS. No really? He got his insight into the world tipping over from German files in Germany. Huh. And the Germans were scurrying around the planet looking for stuff. All right? A very good friend of mine has been talking with um, uh, German officers from World War II about what the Germans were really up to, particularly at the end of the world, at the South Pole. We've had a whole bunch of expeditions down to the South Pole right yeah. after the war ended. Uh, yeah, they did. Now, Graham and I believe, along with some other people like the Flemaths, that the most probable place for the surviving remnants of the last epoch, the last high civilization on this planet, not this integrated system. Now, where our two investigations cross here is that between Graham and me looking at ancient civilizations and remnants, either on, on planet or off planet, and you wondering why Harp is sighted where it is and why it appears to be much more powerful than it needs to be and why there are layers of deception and confusion and cover. What I have found is in looking for these underground cavities, reed bases, tunnels, stores of something, 
the sighting of heart is very specifically situated to probe the Giza Plateau. And if you begin now to look at the orbit of the, uh, of the untethered satellite, in the next week, a week and a half, it will drift repeatedly over the plateau. And with a combination of radio waves that will radiate in, in sympathetic resonance down from the sky, coupled with the ground wave that will be generated from the harp transmitters located in Alaska on the opposite side of the world are. It's within four degrees of being exactly 180 from Giza. And Giza's at 30 north. Harp is at 60 north when you do the conversion between geographic and geodetic coordinates. These are all hyperdimensional numbers if you're using a physics that most people don't even know exists to look for important things underground. Now, here's another data point you need to consider. Remember the French series of nuclear tests the last few weeks that no one could figure out why the French were testing nuclear triggers when all the enemies have gone away? Of course. You know, who were they going to bomb, you know, use them against? The, the Albanians, uh, you know, the, 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 the invading Turkish residents, whatever? No, in fact, if you look at the atoll in the South Pacific where the French were detonating the nuclear weapons, it is precisely 180 degrees on the opposite side of the world from the Giza Plateau. If the Giza Plateau in, in the uh, uh, Richard uh, Robert Baval and Graham Hancock scenario represents the marker of the last high epoch of civilization circa 12,000 years ago, mm -hmm. then it stands to reason that somewhere under that plateau there's an awful lot of neat stuff. And the current folks that are sitting on that neat stuff are the Egyptians. Well, maybe our guys want access to what their guys already suspect or have brought up and suspect that it's much deeper than the Egyptians with their own technology could get to. You bet. So you have a concerted effort to probe with the most sophisticated technology multinationally. And then I have to bring in the work of Bruce Cathay. Yeah, and, and, and that's where Harp comes into the picture. Uh, Harp comes in and the French nuclear test, because the way you tweak the spider web of hyperdimensional physics is you pluck the, the web with nuclear weapons placed at certain strategic latitudes and longitudes. And Bruce Cathy was the first to recognize this, although he thought you could only detonate a nuclear weapon at those latitudes and longitudes. In fact, I think they were using the weapons over the last 30 years to probe this hyperdimensional grid. And again, we're not talking about most of the military-industrial complex. We're talking about a tiny group within that use the resources of nations and corporations and institutions to fulfill their own ends while ostensibly in service to other objectives. All right. Richard, hold it there. Uh, Dr. Begich, I want to give you an opportunity to give out uh, the number up in Alaska where people can get your materials or contact you. Okay, um, we have two things now. We have our first copy of our newsletter, which is a 68-page summary of different sciences, new sciences, and it's 19.95 a year. And we also have our book, Angels Don't Play This Heart, Advances in Tesla Technology, which is 14.95 and $1.50 postage. And that can be obtained by calling 907-249-911. Okay, we've got to be careful with that number. It's very close to an emergency number up there. 907-249-9111. And Richard Hoagland's fax number is 
271-1703, and we're looking for a volunteer. We're looking for information, of course, but we're also looking for a volunteer to put together the materials Richard has uh, to be uploaded to the World Wide Web. And I, uh, do you have a link uh, to our web page, Doctor? Not yet, but um, we would sure like to do that. I've got a website that's um, got quite a bit of uh, things on it beyond heart, and I can give that at www.throne.com, and you can find that through any of those search engines. And it's got heart materials, other materials, and it's continually being added to it as well. What, uh, would, what would both of you say, the American, you know, the average guy sitting out there is going, man, I, I get about half of this, you know? Um, yeah, but there's one heck of a half. Look, I know, I know. My, my question to you both is, what should the American people do? I mean, if this is not what it's supposed to be, and it's something either dark, sinister, a weapon, or uh, to somebody trying to uh, mess about and save the world, uh, or ruin the world, or whatever it is, if it's not what it appears to be, and you both agree on that, what should the American people do? It's so simple. It goes back to the Constitution. Remember, this, this nation was founded on the rather, rather radical idea that ordinary people are smart enough and bright enough to have control of their own destiny. Right. That a handful of people hiding in a room somewhere, either wanting knowledge for their own use, their own survival, their own power, their own monetary gain, is not the way a society should be run. But we, we tried that for thousands of years, and it did not work. The way this society got rich and made people realize their dreams beyond their wildest expectations is by vesting power in ordinary folks who turn out to be extraordinary when you give them the opportunity. That opportunity has been taken away and taken away and taken away piece by piece by piece by piece under the guise of this thing called national security. And it's incredibly ironic to me that when the, all the enemies are gone, when the Cold War is over, when the evil piece by piece by piece by piece under the guise of this thing called national security. And it's incredibly ironic to me that when the, all the enemies are gone, when the Cold War is over, when the evil empire has been defeated, that some of the most clandestine and monstrous and strange experiments harnessing the most gargantuan of energies with folks playing God, you know... Richard, let me cut to the quick here. Who should we... It's happening who should under we, our noses. Yeah, who should we bitch to? That's the question. We have an election coming up. I wish Pat Buchanan would be addressing the real issues of this. <laughs> or one of the other candidates who claims to be a populist. This is where the populism thing should really start. Yeah. All those billions and billions and billions, $50 billion a year that's being picked from your pocket and mine and no one has any accountability. All right, Dr. Uh, Bigot. You know, I think that, that it is, you know, I don't disagree. You know, we believe the same basic principles of individuals are where the power vests and should rest. And what we see in this project and, 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 and the whole chain of events that we lay out you know, in our work is that the, the military, the government, has run away um, with, with the farm and has to have left us with a fragment, a crumb of uh, sense of control that most people have disintegrated into apathy, feeling like you're overwhelmed. Okay. And, and on this project, you know, we've seen the, the activation of a lot of people coming together from very, very different backgrounds, which is a good sign people are getting involved. We've asked, we've asked people to contact their congressional delegations and ask for public hearings on, on this issue as well as the whole issue of non-lethal weapons.
contact our governor here in Alaska in Juneau, Tony Knowles, ask for open hearings on a state basis because we do have a Tenth Amendment that transfers and gives states certain rights. We think that monitoring this project independent of the federal government is an important part of um, taking a little bit more control of our own destiny here. But it is election year. It is time to engage, make this an election issue in every part of the country. National security is the wall behind which too much is hidden and the American people are becoming the victims. And maybe that evil empire is, is uh, extended to our own government in many respects. Well, you do. The two of you do have a uh, big area of agreement. And we're out of time. I want to thank you both. I'm going to give both your numbers out on the air again after the top of the hour. I'm, uh, I know it's late in New York. Richard, go to sleep. We'll talk to you on the, on the 15th. And uh, uh, Dr. Begich, I want to thank you for on short notice coming on the air with us. Always glad to be with you. Okay. Uh, good night, Dr. Begich. Good night, Richard. Good, good night, Art. Good night. There you go, folks. Richard Hoagland in New York. Dr. Nick Begich in Alaska. It was about HARP. What HARP is. Maybe more about what heart isn't. We stay on top of this for you. The shuttle's coming down, we understand, in the morning. We're not sure just where yet, but we'll get that to you, I'm sure, before the show ends this morning.